HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3, our weekly food news roundup. Fall is finally here, so it's time to get funky and devote an episode to some of our favorite spunky microbes. Fungi just provide this beautiful, whimsical lens on how the world works. They have so many roles. They're this strange and magical-seeming group of organisms, but they've got it all figured out. Should you eat the cheese rind? Can you eat the rind? These are like the biggest questions. We'll answer all of your questions about mysterious mushrooms and crazy curds. Plus, we'll give you a sneak listen to the newest season of Modernist Breadcrumbs. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecruset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. Hello, and welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. Uh, I'm your host tonight, Leah Kurtz, and today we have in the studio with us Cleopatra, Cleopatra Zuli. She's a freelance cook, event producer, educator, and entrepreneur. Um, she's a host at Felix Roasting Company, the co-founder of CMJ, a new wellness collective, and also the founder of Black Palette a culinary art collective and event production house that curates empowering dining experiences rooted in conversation, advocacy, mentorship, wellness, and community care. Cleo, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thanks for having me here, Leah. And happy Halloween, I guess. Yeah, happy Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to get started, I'm curious a little bit about your background, like where you grew up and maybe what's like one of your first memories um, around food, whether it was cooking it or just like eating it or yeah, just something that really like resonates with you. Yeah, 
I'm from Boston, Massachusetts originally. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts. My parents are not from the United States. Uh, my mom was born in Haiti and migrated to the United States when she was 17. And my father um, was born in the Congo, but he was raised in Switzerland for a little bit when he was young and then primarily in Belgium. Um, and then he did migrate to the United States and met my mother in Boston. Um, so I grew up in Massachusetts, although I was sent to Haiti from like two years old to five years old. And so when I came back, um, you know, didn't really speak English, uh, learned in kindergarten and, um, you know, was primarily raised with my single mother. Um, from my understanding, my parents kind of separated around like five, six years old. Um, and so a lot of my food memories actually um, are my own, but are centered around my parents, um, either eating with my parents or watching them eat things, um, and mostly centered around dining out, oddly enough, so, and it's something that I really love to do now. Um, and I'd say probably um, my earliest food memory in terms of me eating something where I had a full body experience, where I really realized that I am a greedy person, I love food, and <laughs> all of the things that um, food taps into. Um, in terms of my spirit was probably around like six or seven years old. So in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in Chancellor Square, there is an Ethiopian and Eritrean restaurant um, called Asmara. And my father brought me there actually when I was yeah six or seven. And um, it was a family friend of his restaurant. And, you know, I fell in love. I've always loved spicy food. Um, so lots of flavor, lots of spices and lots of peppers. Um, and I was just instantly in love with all of the flavors. But I also had this thing where I wasn't into eating with utensils growing up. I was going to so say, I was super into that as a child. Perfect food for kids. <laughs> yeah, but it was also really beautiful for me. I remember mm -hmm. having a really visceral experience, like really walking in, and um, they primarily have traditional um, Ethiopian and Etrio. Eritrean, excuse me, uh, style seating uh, for their meals in that restaurant with like a couple of tables. I don't know if things have changed lately. So, you know, the first thing that I noticed is we walked into this restaurant and there were no tables um, and or anything that I associated with tables. And, you know, there are these round, beautiful woven baskets. And um, my father, you know, we sat down and, you know, connected with uh, the waitress and the people who own the restaurant. And, you know, it was just very familial. And although my father is not um, from Eritrea or Ethiopia, you know, part of my I lived experience was that um, African people connected with one another and Caribbean people connected with one another and it didn't really matter where you were from and so you know you kind of kept that um, connecting point and you supported their businesses so yeah I was just instantly into it I loved eating with my hands I loved um, you know the art on the walls I really remember um, loving seeing brown people um, on the walls and I grew up in a Haitian home where you know there's Haitian art on the walls and so I admired that and I luckily at the time went to a school that was um, very socially conscious and so um, it was the Martin Luther King Jr. High School in Cambridge um, excuse me elementary school in Cambridge and you know had big murals of Martin Luther King and so it was something that just felt like home mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways and yeah I loved it um, but I also really remember my mother eating uh, my mom and I, because she was a single mom, I was always at activities and she was working and, um, you know, I did spend a lot of time at home and, you know, I did cook at home, but we spent a lot of time going places and picking up food and um, supporting uh, people of color owned food businesses. So 
I really remember my mom loving blood sausage, mm -hmm. uh, like Puerto Rican blood sausage, at this uh, spot called Izzy's in Cambridge, which I think is still open. Um, and I just remember thinking, my mom is so gross. <laughs> <laughs> she always loved these foods that I just didn't understand. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and she loved to kind of gross me out. My mom's like the person who likes scary movies and like things like that, too. So she would like eat the blood sausage and be kind of dramatic about it. And I'd be like, ew, um, but I can smell it. Um, and she would go to we would go to Highland Cuisine, which is this um, Haitian restaurant in Somerville, Massachusetts. And she would always buy a whole fish um, or we'd sit there or we'd take it back home and um, her favorite part at the end was eating the head mm. and like sucking on the eyes and like grossing me out and things like that. Um, but yeah, you know, those are a lot of early food memories. It's like with my parents and definitely um, rooted in Massachusetts and the Boston area. Yeah. And at what point did you start like cooking for yourself or getting uh, kind of experimental in the kitchen, like creating flavors, you know, on your own? Yeah, so my mom is a single mother and, you know, I grew up uh, with primarily her raising me as a single mother. And so um, cooking for myself was a form of self-care and survival. Um, so it was a lot of um, my life was a lot of waking up um, and like getting uh, groceries um, and, you know, going shopping and coming home and trying to recreate things that I ate when I went out with my friends or when I went out with my family. Um, and uh, yeah, I think cooking also for me towards junior high school became um, a space where I was really trying to engage with healing and in a way that I maybe was conscious or not conscious about, but as a younger person, um, before I was a teenager, I did have an eating disorder and so cooking was really a form of getting some kind of control over what I could eat. And I was always having conversations with my mother and my stepfather at the time about my eating habits um, as I got older. And I don't know if, you know, I still had an eating disorder or if it was kind of like playing itself out. It still does as an adult, but um, they would be like, you don't eat anything that's not beige, you know? And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and so I started to like, okay, like, I'm going to try some stuff out. And I would do it at home and, um, you know, have fun with it. And it was a creative thing for me. I started to notice that it made me feel better as a person. Just kind of my brain space just felt super calm. And um, at school, luckily in high school, I got to engage with food a lot. Um, I went to a private Catholic school that just happened to have a lot of extracurricular activities and allowed us to create clubs or lead a lot of clubs. And um, we did have a really good um, language program and an international program. So, you know, we did uh, study abroad programs and a lot of and traveling a lot abroad. And a lot of that was centered around food because mm. the head of the language department, my French teacher, was really into using things like literature, food and other things to engage with language and learning about other cultures. And so she um, was the advisor to an in the International Club, which was a club where in high school we got to throw dining events, um, and, but also they had to be related back to our cultures. Um, and so, you know, as a Haitian and African person, I got to cook things or bring things in from my family and then teach people in our school about it. We got to go to restaurants in different cultures, about different cultures, and then she would, you know, teach us about that and we would learn about that that way. So a lot of it was um, just just something that viscerally I had the privilege of tapping into but professionally when I started to work my mother who had formerly been a waitress as an immigrant told me that I could not 
um, go into food service Ooh. for a job. So that was a little disappointing, but in a lot of ways, I feel like, um, you know, it really saved me in a lot of ways, to be honest. Um, so what did you end up pursuing? So, um, yeah, I've spent the last 14 years pursuing um, education and education leadership. And, you know, that had translated to nonprofit leadership, corporate social responsibility, doing work around inclusion and belonging, and then going into training teachers and training those, um, you know, who do all that work. Um, and my work had from schools to um, companies to nonprofit organizations had always been around events. And so, you know, a lot of these um, companies or spaces were event-based um, spaces. And so in work and then outside of work, I was doing a lot of event production, mm. um, also in the community around social justice work. So, you know, it kind of all fits in. Yeah, and I mean, anywhere where there's an event, there's gonna be food, like. Absolutely. So, so it, like, were you kind of keeping that kind of on the back back burner terrible pun but um were you, like, were you kind of was that the the your kind of love for food or for creating it part oh, of I that or were you it. like kind of oh it was never on the back burner because always... my life outside of work was really important to me and so food is like I said I'm greedy it's a driving factor in my <laughs> life anybody who spends a second with me knows that and so whether it be meeting people for the first time and a lot of my entry points to friendships were like cooking together I hosted a lot of private dinner parties um, and also in my work that translated you know as an educator food was part of my work with young people mm -hmm. um, you know even with my colleagues um, you know doing things like we're gonna have like a fake top chef but like you're doing it in Spanish you know, mm. it's like you have to figure out all these things. Or also, you know, working with young people, a lot of my um, eating habits were really in interesting to them because, you know, I believe in working in communities with young people who were reflective of me and who I looked like and who could see something in myself, um, you know. And so a lot of those young people would be like, Miss, what's that? Like, what are you eating? <laughs> you know, and so a lot of our conversations were about food um, and young people are hungry, you know. As a teacher, the first thing that I uh, learned um, is that it's really impossible for young people to do well in school when they come to school hungry. Yeah. Um, and also in schools, there's terrible food. Oh, yeah. um, and so for me, um, it was really important to also have food be part of my uh, teaching and learning space. And young people always challenged me about the food that I would bring in, but they always loved it. You know, they're like, miss, this is too healthy. Miss, what is this? <laughs> you know, but, you know, we, we were into it, you know, and they loved it. And food's a part of my life, so, you know, it's just important for me to have a, a time and a space in my career where I was able to lean into it. And so I was privileged enough to start to be able to work from home primarily, work remotely. Um, you know, I was traveling 30 to 50% of the time, but if I wasn't, um, you know, I was at home working. And so I was able to lean into private chef work mm -hmm. um, and then start doing, um, you know, the work in the background to really start up this company um, and bring people into a collective. And was cooking with the students a way to kind of educate and have those conversations that reflect like you know labor or access or um representation but using like the the food itself as an entry point did that like become a a tool that you could use as a you know to educate 
Yeah, absolutely. Mostly because the work that I was doing with young people was also very intentionally social justice work. So my first, um, you know, my first job outside of college, um, you know, I went to the New School for Undergrad, was here in Bushwick. You know, we're here at Roberta's and um, right there on Wilson and Palmetto, I work for Bushwick Community High School, which is a transfer school where our, our students are 17 to 21 mm -hmm. and they've either been formally incarcerated or, you know, dropped out of high school and are deciding that they want to go back to school and get credit um, to get their diploma before they age out. And so it's very intentionally a space that was centered around liberating them around knowing themselves and their cultures. And so the food work that we did didn't just tie back to having them understand themselves and their cultures, but where I'm not the expert, I'm all about creating spaces where I bring in people who know better, right? And so did bring in a lot of people um, with a colleague of mine who is a Spanish teacher, um, Ji Yun. Um, we brought in just a lot of food activists, you know? And so young people were also getting a different lens on food and food culture um, and food activism that I may have not been the um, expert on, but I thought it was really important for them to gain that knowledge about, you know? So if we're going to talk about, if we're going to talk about you know, you making a tres leches cake, you know, then we have people who are coming in talking about milk and milk production and cows and all of those things as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're going to take a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back. to pioneer colorful enamel cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the eight-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecreuset.com hrn, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T, dot com slash hrn to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals hrn listeners will get 20 percent off the new Le crusade cookbook with the code hrn Welcome back to Food Without Borders. I'm your host, Leah Kurtz, and today we have in the studio Cleo Zuli of Black Palette. Um, welcome back, Cleo. So we were just talking a little bit about um, her work around food and education and activism, and so I'm kind of curious, like, how did Black Palette kind of arise? Like, how did you um, 
get the idea for that project and um, yeah, like what has kind of evolved out of it since you've started? The idea for a black palette came out of wanting something, wanting space, wanting community, wanting um, opportunity to engage around food um, in ways where I wasn't finding, you know, and in communities specifically with people I wasn't finding that within particular food spaces. So I really love a lot of things that some of my friends of color also love, but then we go to those restaurants or we go to those experiences or we go to those events and we were the only ones. Um, and so, you know, as a person of color who grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, it's not unfamiliar and it's not unusual for me to be used to being one of the only or one of the few. Um, but for me, moving to New York was really empowering because as soon as I moved to New York, I was really able to make intentional um, decisions about the community that I wanted to build. Um, and I was able to, from choosing college professors to moving my life forward, um, build a community of people of color, of queer people, of allied people who support people of color and uh, queer people, and you know, be super intentional about it. And so, I always ask myself, um, you know, the question of, you know, how long am I going to say I wish I could, should, and would have, and you know, before I just kind of do it myself. And so Black Palette just arose out of that. It also pays homage to the fact that my need to want these spaces was really um, nostalgic. I grew up with my mom and my aunt and my uncle who raised me, and they were young 20-somethings who were super into food and community. And um, they had lots of dinner parties. And I was a young person in those dinner parties, at those dinner parties with, uh, with some other children didn't maybe have much of an appreciation for it then. Um, definitely appreciated all the food. Um, and, you know, I think being in New York, it's really easy to sometimes feel, even though there's so many people around, that you're alone mm -hmm. and that it's a city that's not really um, built around things like family or community. But on the contrary, New York really is a, a city that is built around family and community. And so I just wanted to tap into that um, and create the space that I was looking for. And you probably, I'm sure, found that you weren't the only one looking for that, right? Like Precisely. you, you know, attracted the same, you know, the, that longing, I'm sure, and the people that end up, you know coming to your events and becoming part of your chosen family. Mm -hmm. And that's how we, you know, also became a collective. You know, I have a need and I have a gap that I want to fill. But, you know, before I had partners and co-founders in this business and this collective, I was really trying to figure out if it was the right move for me to approach this on my own. And I just didn't feel like it was because it's not about me. It was about, of course, something that I saw needed to be you know, a gap that I saw needed to be filled, but it was about so many other people who felt the same way. And so I just connected with people um, on the business end who I felt like could really help me start to build something. Um, and then we have opened it up to folks to come and join the collective, whether you be somebody who's attending our events or people who are now our squad and our little fam who really produce these events with us um, to people who are interested in collaborating, you know, see what we're doing and are also doing great things and want to build and create something new that other people haven't done before because, again, we're not really trying to replicate things. So, you know, I, I have a 
athletic background. And so I always say this a lot with Travis, my co-founder and Kendra, you know, we see things evolve and when things start to show that people are kind of doing the same things that we're interested in doing, we just pivot, you know, mm -hmm. because that's what we're trying to do, fill gaps. Yeah. And I mean, so last night I had the pleasure of eating some of your food. At, yeah, Leah, at you were, I, I, this is not the first time we're meeting. Yes, last night was the first time we met. And I definitely noticed you. You were given a red lip, you know, looking fierce. Just trying, just trying. It was really like eyeballing that, that table. Um, but no, it was, well, delicious. But like your, uh, so your involvement in the Just Food Gala, and I think it is worth mentioning also that like that was a kind of unique event that brought out a lot of like queer POC um, culinary you know event producers pop-ups um, producers and chefs mm -hmm. and um, it was really refreshing to see that in a space that I think has been historically very straight and white mm -hmm. um, and to see that represented and so I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about your involvement with that and maybe some of the things that you prepared yeah I always like to make people kind of salivate <laughs> a little bit you know cool cool <laughs> yeah I mean first I want to say that I was so humbled to be in this space last night you know the Just Food Gala was a beautiful space that was overflowing with like you said queer and POC food producers and you know people who really love food and um, you know feel it from the bottom of their hearts um, and their bellies and um, I feel very blessed to have been invited to join that space you know we've been around for a little less than a year a lot of those people in that space I really admire um, those are people who I whose work um, I really admired prior to Black Palette um, being what it's become and you know these are also people who have been professionally working in kitchens and restaurants a lot um, you know a lot of the times in spaces that are unsafe to them as people of color and as queer people or non-binary people and you know I pay so much respect to them um, full transparency like I said you know my 14-year career involved here and there like catering gigs and like you know yeah going to an interview at a for a restaurant and being like oh absolutely not um, and having the privilege to decide to make a living in another capacity while I was engaging in food without having to survive off of it so I have a lot of respect for all those people first mm -hmm. and foremost um, and also as creatives I really am impressed with so many of them um, our involvement there was really about us getting the word out, you know, is really letting people know that we're not a restaurant, um, we're not a traditional catering company, we're just really trying to create food that honors the diaspora and do dining events differently, you know, whether they be for our, ourselves, you know, we have a monthly event called Fed that happens at now Manny's Restaurant, because we have a, in Brooklyn, which is a restaurant that we have a re residency at. Um, which is in Bed-Stuy, In right? Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, um, on Patchen Avenue. Um, but then we also collaborate on other events. Um, and so last night was about us just giving that vibe, you know, like if you were to come to our party, um, you know, just this would be the little bit of the vibe that you would feel, you know, come and connect with us, eat the food that we're inspired by in terms of our, dias you know, our diasporic backgrounds. Last night we were slinging chicken wings. Um, so, you know, I'm a kid in, from Boston. I love diner food and deli food. Um, grew up kind of in that culture. Um, my mother used to make whiskey chicken. Um, and so 
we decided to make whiskey, honey whiskey chicken, mm -hmm. um, and kind of reminded me a little bit um, of this place called SNS in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that I would eat at a lot because they had these kind of sweet and spicy wings. So ours were honey whiskey chicken wings with a little bit of chili um, and a little bit of sea salt on them. And uh, we had some cornbread um, and we topped some of that cornbread off with some vanilla honey butter with some corn kernels, some sweet corn kernels. And then for those who wanted to keep it savory, we had garlic scallion butter. Um, and then we made some stew. Uh, so we made a greens and beans, so a vegetarian stew that had greens and beans and coconut milk and cashews. So in Haitian culture, we have dishes that have a lot of chicken and cashews in them, but we wanted to give something for vegetarian folks. Travis is from Virginia, who's my co-chef, and um, you know we merge a lot of his background from the diaspora as an African-American person from the rural South, and then my background, which is Haitian food, and also Haitian food is just kind of a lot of melange of things, and then Congolese African food. So the stew and the greens, um, you know, was paired with uh, some rice. So we made some rice balls and in both our cultures, rice is really important. Um, and yeah, so we were just slinging those stew and rice balls of chicken wings and some cornbread and uh, folks seemed to enjoy it. Um, I heard that it was, some of the stuff was spicy, which was <laughs> really interesting because whenever I cook, it's me not actually cooking from my palate. And so I'm always like, oh, this is not spicy at all. <laughs> and I'm like, this is, this is all right. And you know, I'm always interested in hearing what other people say, but uh, I'm glad people enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, let them sweat kick. a little bit, it's yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any um, upcoming projects or events that you are um, you know, working towards that you want to talk about or can talk about. I know there's, you know, maybe an air of secrecy around some of the things that are on the horizon, but yeah, there's definitely some secrecy <laughs> around some stuff, but what I can say is, you know, we're closing out the year really working and we're in business mode, doing a lot of strategic planning, um, really trying to get this money, um, in a lot of different ways. And so we do have a crowdfunding campaign that is going to drop soon, ideally on Black Friday. Um, but we are going to be at an event that I'm co-producing with um, my wellness collective, my new wellness collective, CMJ. Um, and what does that stand for? So it's literally just the initials of the three of us. Oh, so okay. myself, gotcha. Cleo. Um, Cleo Zuli, Marissa Hall, who's a yoga instructor, and then a writer and healer, Jenna Wortham. So the three of us um, are going to produce an event that is on December 1st at um, Hub 17, which is in the city around Union Square area. Um, it's a Lululemon wellness space, and um, our event is called Flora, um, and it's really a day of being intentional about creating a wellness practice. Um, and so there's a lot of different things that are going to be going on. Flyer is going to drop tomorrow on the 1st, and so we hope everybody can come through. But Black Palette is going to be um, throwing a food class there and having a little tasting and demo. So we want people to come out, um, join Black Palette, join CM CMJ for our launch event, and, um, you know, really get well um, and enjoy yourselves. Yeah. Um, and do you, feel like the, do you feel like the past year, so it has been a big year for for you, I think it was in the summer, right, that you got that Black Palette was featured in the uh, Queer Food New York yeah. Times article, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's been a big deal. And then doing some of these events that definitely are not just about food, right? They have this strong kind of political 
and um, like racial economic equity undertone, which of course, like, I mean, that's always been really important, but especially with um, the way the, the floor keeps dropping out of, you know, the kind of the political climate here. And so like, is it, do you intentionally try to bring that in and make that very clearly known, like, this is a safe space and we are kind of trying to, you know, talk back against kind of the mainstream political culture that's increasingly oppressive to queer POC, non-binary trans bodies. Yeah, we try to be super intentional about sending that message, maybe not in a didactic way. I think the invention, the creation, um, you know, the initiation of black palette is such that response to the fact that we do not have these safer spaces where we can come and eat and not be accidental about connecting. Um, you know, so for me, I'm not somebody who's interested in going to any more social spaces or creating more social spaces, excuse me, where I leave and I'm like, oh, wow, that was a really great conversation. And that was an accident. You know, I really want people to come to the space knowing that they're going to be held. Um, you know, we call fed, fed for a reason, and it's not just about coming to eat. It's about feeling as if you are full mentally, spiritually, um, you know, in physically as well. You know, there's a visceral reaction uh, that happens when you're being satiated, when you're, all your senses are being fulfilled. And we also know through research um, that we've had um, or that we've embarked on that says when people are having all their senses fulfilled, they're more comfortable having uncomfortable conversations or potentially uncomfortable conversations. And so what better space to engage, um, you know, around things that are hot topics than eating? You know, I think we intentionally wanted to defy this. I don't know who created that saying of like, you can't talk about certain things at the dinner table. Mm. Like we're so not into that. Like <laughs> my entire life is talking about all types of things with my friends while we're eating all the time. That is the best place to talk about them. And we challenge each other and it's not a combative thing. It's something where we might not all agree, but we're literally growing. We leave the space expanding. We feel full, we feel happy. We feel like, wow, why don't I do this more often? And so we want people to feel that way. And, you know, I definitely try to be intentional and I hope people enjoy it. I did go to an event um, earlier this month and somebody did stop and say that you know she said I feel like your events are the kind of safe spaces that people try to create but can't and that mm -hmm. like really meant a lot to me um, more than any New York Times piece to be honest it was like oh wow okay I want people to keep feeling this way and you know it's it's the same mindset that I've always gone into all of my work when I was a teacher you know I want my students to walk in that room and feel like I love you, you are special, and not because I'm saying the words, but because the details show you that I put a lot of thought and intention. And that sh tells me, um, you know, that tells you that I care so much, you know, and that tells me when you notice that we have a relationship where we're trying to grow together. Um, as an educator, it was never about me knowing more than my students. I learned so much from them. I feel the same way about the people who come to our events. This is, you know, a relationship, you know, and it's a conversation when you come and you engage. We don't do panels personally, so that's one thing that people might not realize. They might see special guests and we're going to have conversations, but when they come to our events, they realize that we don't like panel styles. Um, 
from being an educator, I learned very early on that it's just not the way for me or other people. Um, and so, you know, I don't like to talk at people and I don't want people to feel talked at. So anybody who buys a ticket a month before they even come to the event, they've already got an opportunity to submit questions. And that allows me to literally create um, a program where me and whoever is a special guest is we already have the names of the people who are in the space I can refer to that those people can be called upon they can ask the questions themselves you know we take moments where the people who are the special guests aren't even saying anything for like 20 minutes and the audience is the people who are just talking so you know we really try to be intentional about creating a community space where people can really be vulnerable um, and not feel like they're just coming to an event with talking heads and so that's where the art the live performances come in that's where yoga comes in um, dance party, you know, we don't just come and eat and talk. It's part of it, but we do so much more. Yeah, and that's that creates, I'm sure, like a both very kind of um, spontaneous maybe topics that arise, mm -hmm. or do you have like a planned topic or like a signed reading or like anything like that ahead of time, or is it just kind of you kind of let the, the spirit move? It's a little bit of a hybrid, right? Okay. So I, you know, we know that, for example, a year ago, our first launch event, you know, we had guest speakers. There's two focal points of two different sets of conversations that happened throughout the day because it was like a six-hour day. And so one of the conversations was about decolonizing food culture, um, art, and hospitality through art and design or through curation and design. And so that was the overarching topic, but people submitted questions, people submitted conversation points or things that they were particularly interested in related to those general uh, topics and so that drove things wherever they wanted to be and I had a moderator who was leading that conversation and so you know she kind of ran with the conversation where she wanted and prepared that way and then the other conversation was about um, creating creative pipelines for young and marginalized uh, artists and creatives out there and doing that in a meaningful and intentional way um, and so we had people who had been doing that kind of work, maybe where people who could speak to their own experiences could really share resources. We don't bring people in the spaces like experts. Um, we bring people in spaces like, you know, kind of informants. Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, it, and we recognize that other people in this, in, who are coming and uh, paying to be there as well are just as valuable. Um, and that does come from, again, my education background, I've always had like, Paulo Freire is somebody who I very much admire, who's a Brazilian um, a philosopher and scholar and educator, and he very much believes in demystifying and debunking the banking system of learning, which is the idea that as a teacher I come into a space and I am the all-knower, and I am here to deposit knowledge into my students as empty vessels. Um, he actually defies that and says that we are all learners and students, and so I just am really trying to continue to move in that tradition in the spaces that I create you know, outside of Black Palette conferences and other events I've done, I try to always keep that in mind and I'm just going to keep moving forward in that direction. And what more unifying, uh, like, activity than a dance party? Right? <laughs> Dancing and food, which yeah. is going to be great because now at Manny's, you know, we really only have that space for dinner time and after hours. And so we're really trying to create something a little differently, um, hopefully in New York and Brooklyn culture. Um, we have a great backyard space as well. So during the summers or spring, it's on. Um, <laughs> or in, when it's cold, we're trying to get these heaters out. So who knows? Yeah. <laughs> well, movement's a great uh, natural way to warm it up. I Absolutely. Guess. Um, well, be sure to check out Black Palette. We're going to link to you like in our post when um, after we... 
uh, yeah, we download this episode and it's available. If you didn't catch us live, then that means you're listening to it um, <laughs> on our podcast. So uh, it's available on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and then also at heritageradionetwork.org. And we'll link to Cleo's personal page if you want i don't know uh sure. and black palette but mostly black palette <laughs> black and it's b-l-k-p-a-l-a-t-e sure. and instagram is primarily where you guys post yes. your um and then also your website um and so you can take you know take a peek at that and see what she's up to um and obviously follow it and then you'll be able to be updated on any of the upcoming events that they're doing um, Cleo, thank you so much for stopping by and chatting. It's it's like <laughs> fascinating to to hear more about like the the structure of the work that you do and also the place you're coming from and kind of the really philosophical underpinning that's so important right now. That's like a beautiful approach to not just food but education and activism. That is, it's really great. Thank anyway. you. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you holding space and. You know, I do admire the work that you do here and otherwise. You know, you're a fellow educator as well um, and, you know, doing amazing things in the food world. So I'm happy to be here. Thanks. And we'll be back next week um, on HeritageRadioNetwork.org with another episode of Food Without Borders. Until then, take care of yourself and stay well fed. (laughs) Good night. Later. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.